we've got, if you've got the handout, we do have some extras. If you've got friends who need them, it's also on the CEA website. Our presentation isn't going to be exactly in the same order as the handout. Otherwise, you'd be listening to me for a long time and Megan for a little bit at the end. Just because I have a tendency to go along with books. All right, so usually I don't put my absolute favorite book at the beginning, but I decided to this year. Everything Sad is Untrue. It is a fantastic book on so many levels. Um, it is also the very first one on here. One of the things I liked about it the most is not only is it a story told from a perspective you don't very often hear, a boy who's an immigrant. A lot of times we hear the girl immigrant stories. We don't very often hear the male immigrant stories. And he's coming from Iran. And there's a lot of poop in the story because he's a third grade boy after all. And one of the big cultural differences he notices right away is Americans poop weird. We use toilet paper. He's like, that's disgusting. How do you, like, get clean? And so there's a lot of, like, trying to figure out how does he negotiate just using the bathroom in a totally different society where he comes out and he's like, I'm just not clean. This is wrong. Because he's used to using water for the day. So that there's, if you've got kids that really want sort of a, an interesting, weird sort of story, it's great. Um, what I love the most about it is a lot of times when you get stories that mention Christianity at all, it's sort of like either that's the nice character or the really weird character, or this woman, his mother, left everything. He was the son, well, okay, the mom and the dad when they got married, they are both descended from the prophet's family. So they are Islam. And she was exposed to Christ at a wedding of a younger niece or nephew or cousin or something like that. And she's like, I, okay, in fairness, I should look into this. And she's like, this is the truth. And she leaves everything behind, which is why she's in the United States. It's, I mean, it's really, really an interesting story. All right, next one. Being Toffee. Uh, Being Toffee it takes place in Great Britain. It's about a young, probably 14, 15-year-old girl. She's early high school. It's an abusive situation, but part of it is because her mother died. Dad has never really gotten over it. Mom died when she was really, really, really young. And so she runs away trying to find Dad's new girlfriend, who's also taken off. And when she arrives in this seaside village, she doesn't find her. She's used all her money, she doesn't know what she's going to do, so she's stuck there. And she ends up finding a shed in somebody's backyard, which, you know, the English call them their gardens. So she's in somebody's garden shed at the back of the yard, hoping that no one ever finds her. Well, the old lady who owns the house finds her, but the old lady is demented. And she's or suffering dementia. And she often goes by her stage name of Toffee. And so they don't know each other, but they end up helping each other out. And it, it's all a novel inverse. Turtle Boy. All right. Um, Turtle Boy is an interesting book because um, the, there's a lot of information about Judaism in it. And so it's, you know, the, the family goes to, um, I can't even think of the word right now. Temple. Yeah. To the, the synagogue, the temple, and they, they, there's a lot about like the culture of that, like that their family's involved in, the religious experiences, the just a lot of Jewish words and terminology. 
Um, and so that's kind of like the, I don't know, the backdrop for the whole story. And um, Will, um, his interaction with the rabbi is kind of the main relationship in the story where they're, he's having a hard time because his dad has died um, in the past. And so the story kind of picks up that he wants to be by himself and he really loves being outside and he loves turtles, but he's like really struggling with interacting with other people. And so the rabbi has this idea that all the kids um, should be doing some sort of service project and he was refusing. So he brings them with him to the hospital um, to be like the buddy for a kid with cancer at the hospital. And so, of course, like he doesn't want to, he doesn't like this, and he sits and ignores this kid because he's in his own little world of trouble. Um, and then this, um, the, the kid that has cancer has like the bucket list um, because he doesn't know if he'll ever make it out of the hospital. And so then Will ends up having to take on the bucket list and go and actually do the things for this kid who's in the hospital and come back and report to him on those experiences. And through that um, process of having to do really hard things for somebody else kind of helps him overcome his own struggles and difficulties. Um, and it's, you know, my, my son's super into nature and outdoors and, and you know, animals and turtles and so it's got this whole other theme in there that I think boys would really be interested in of like saving the nature preserve behind the school so I'm just throwing there's a lot of different ways that people could connect to this book um, and it's not written from a Christian perspective but it certainly has themes of um, like putting like self putting yourself aside in some ways to love and care for somebody else a lot of the themes that I think we could connect to as Christians as well. Um, Kate Milford is the author of all of the Green Glass books. This is sort of a standalone book. I'll be honest, I've never read any of her other stuff. I picked this up on a whim. It reminds me of Chaucer, where you've got a group of people that are all trapped in a circumstance. I mean, Chaucer, they're all on pilgrimage together, and they take turns telling tales. So you've got sort of story within a story. There is a flood rising outside of this inn and all the people that are in there are stuck and they're not going on anywhere else and so someone suggests will you tell stories um, the stories are, they kind of remind me of Edgar Allan Poe this is not a fairy tale in the nice sense this is more, it's a lot more macabre uh, you have I mean it, there are a lot of old folk tales that kind of get reworked and woven into this sort of the devil of the crossroads type of stories um, selkies, people who could transform into sea animals and then back into human form. So it's it's a fascinating story. It's definitely not a Christian story, but it you know to me it falls into the same category as Edgar Allan Poe. It's it's really good writing, but I wouldn't put it in the hands of just any old kid. Um, when you trap a tiger, this is, I, sorry there's a typo on there, it is the 2021 Newbery Award. Um, it is, it's a really interesting story. It takes place on the West Coast. Uh, there are, the main character, let's see, her name is Lily, and she's got an older sister and mom. The story starts out that they're driving up the coast from California up to Oregon because they're going back to live with grandma. Dad died in a car accident on a rainy day, so anything involving being in the car is slightly terrifying for everybody. So as they're driving along, the younger daughter sees this tiger that's in the road, and she's sure they're going to hit it, and doesn't. Well, it gets into, that's like your introduction 
into the Korean folklores because the, the family is Korean. There's a lot of, you learn some Korean folklore, some Korean mythology. You get some hints about the Korean occupation by Japan during World War II where you kind of maybe think maybe in grandma's history that she was the daughter of one of the comfort women or she was herself one of the comfort women. But you never really kind of get the whole story. It's like there are little hints. Um, there, there's a lot of it that I really, really enjoyed. From a Christian perspective, they really go all into this is how we're going, this is how we're going to believe. So it's not folklore to these kids. This is a belief that's going to save grandma. Um, the thing that's going to probably cause struggles for anybody reading the book is that the older sister has some <coughs> this nebulous relationship because they lived in this town with grandma before when they were younger. They moved away, and now they're back, and older sister has re-met a friend from her youth who's a couple years older than her. And these two girls are kind of doing stuff together. And it's got this, you know, you could read whatever you want into this relationship until like the last three pages where they're kissing. It's, it's almost like the author feels that we have to make this very, very clear what kind of relationship this is rather than just letting the reader kind of think what they want. There were some parts of the book where I kind of felt like the author wanted to make sure she check, checked all of the, this has to be part of really good Newberry material right now. And Personally, I think she could have left some of it out, leave it up to the reader, but those are the choices she made. Um, so just, you know, now you know. <coughs> Starfish. All right. Um, Such a great picture on the front cover. I know, I love it. <laughs> so this is a story in uh, novel and verse, and there's a lot of, it's very direct, about um, a, from the perspective of a girl who's dealing with her own body image, but really, it really m makes it pretty clear in the story that it's not. She probably wouldn't think much of herself being heavier or the kind of the size of her body if it wasn't for everyone else commenting on it all the time. So you know, it's like her experience of she goes to school and kids make fun of her. She goes to the grocery store and people comment on it. Her you know, family members, brother, sister, everyone makes such a big deal of it that all of a sudden she's like, why, why, why does after everything have to be so hard? And kind of going through that adolescent time, her favorite thing to do is swim because she can be by herself in the backyard and no one comments to her. And so that's kind of her safe space. And so the book is very direct, like dealing with the issue. It's, it's very much like the names she's called, the thing, you know, and it's all, I mean, I put fifth grade up because nothing that is it's not like bad words or something but they're not nice words if that makes sense you know it's it's things that she's like why are they reacting like this and she doesn't necessarily for herself see the big deal it she doesn't feel bad about herself other than everybody else just keeps like piling this on her um and so she starts seeing a therapist who helps her kind of deal with that and stand up for herself and interact you know sometimes she makes bad choices about how she interacts with people gets herself in trouble, trying to figure out how to how to deal with it, and then even with her own brother or sister parents, like kind of communicating what she needs. So in, it's, it was an interesting read, partly because I think it's a reaction to like the time period we live in. Like it felt very like 
where we live in this world today. People have to say what they think, and here's why, and we have therapists, and we have to deal with that, you know, and it's like kind of very much set, like in the, but it's very much set in the world, I think, that kids live in right now, and that um, I, I liked it a lot, but I think for just any random kid to pick it up, they're going to be like, what is this book? But I think there's a lot of kids, even if their issue isn't a similar issue to what she's dealing with, that if they're really struggling with something, this would be a great book to talk through, like, well, how does she handle good, you know, this problem in an appropriate way or a not appropriate way? How, sh- how can she look at herself? Um, yeah, it would be a really great book to do with, like, a small group of girls and have a conversation about it. So sort of like if you're the one non-sports person in a family that lives, dies, and breathes sports. Yeah, you could identify you with how connection. she's feeling. <laughs> yeah, okay. exactly. It doesn't have to be that particular thing, but yeah, it was good. Oh, Gary Schmidt. It's always a favorite. Um, this one, I can't say too much about this book or I will just, you know, ruin it for all of you. But it picks up with Meryl Lee. And, um, yeah, Meryl Lee Kowalski, you know, hauling hood hoods, love of his life. It picks up right after eighth grade, and I'm going to stop there. Just make sure you got the Kleenex box, people, because it's, it's, it's... And there's there's also another character um, named Matthew, and both kids are dealing with tragedy. And how do you deal with tragedy from very, very different perspectives, and yet you're both dealing with a complete and total loss. But it's also complicated by the fact that the adults in your life are also dealing with losses and struggles of their own. There's a whole, it's a Gary Schmidt book. There's hope, there's redemption. It's, it's very real, in a sense, you know. It doesn't shy away from the fact that, that grief is hard. So, I'll stop talking. Just, yeah. uh, Wild River is by Rodman Philbrick. He writes a lot of, you know, adventure kind of stories. Um, first person narrator, it's Danny. It's a once in a lifetime rafting thing and they end up starting from a different point and then there's a flash flood because the dam breaks and what are the kids going to do? Because all of the adults are dead. So that's, it's, it's, if you've got a kid who needs really short chapters with lots and lots of action and doesn't care how realistic it is sometimes, this is the one for you. Um, It does get a lot into the idea of how do you work with other people? Do you go with the person who has the loudest voice, looks biggest and strongest? Do you go with the person who makes the most sense? What if the person that makes the most sense is just really hard to get along with? What do you do with the followers? So it's, for all its kind of unreal situations throughout the story, it does get some really great ideas about how you work together as a team when it, you know everybody's life is on the line. All right, Rescue is World War II. Um, Marguerite Meg is her name. And her dad has left. She lives in France. Dad is of an English background. Mom is French. And they are in occupied France. They're not in the, well, okay, they're not technically in the German occupied France, but we all know it was all German occupied France. And dad has been gone. He volunteered and signed up way at the beginning of the war, right after Dunkirk and they haven't heard back from him in years. So the daughter has this like book that dad gave her with all these codes in it because he liked code breaking and they played with words and anagrams and stuff. And she's down to the last one and she feels like as soon as she solves that last one, everything will be fine again, dad will come home, but she can't figure it out. 
then there's a mysterious stranger in the barn. And they have to help save an SOE, you know, special operations guy from the Nazis who are coming to town that day to check everybody's houses and do stuff. It's a great, there, there are some parts where it's, it's great adventure, but there are other parts where I'm just like, are you serious? As an adult, I look at this and I'm like, what spy in his right mind brings his spy manual in the bag with all the spy tricks and leaves it in the barn for the 12-year-old girl? It just doesn't happen. There are just too many, you know, they're saved by an avalanche that comes behind them and wipes out the, the Nazis who are following them. As an adult, it's really hard to buy that. As a kid, it'd be awesome. And, you know, and she, she does have a little thing at the end about codes and code breaking and gives you some, some trial codes. So it's a fun book. I don't think it necessarily does a whole lot of justice to the real issues of World War II. All right. Zora and me. All right. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the African-American author Zora Neale Hurston. Um, she's a pretty famous lady. But this book is kind of a tribute to her. So when it says Zora and me, that's the Zora that's being referred to. Now, when I picked up the book as kind of an oblivious, a little bit oblivious reader, I was like, oh, this is a cute story. Then you get to the end, you're like, oh, it's about a famous person. Oh, that. Okay, now it all comes into context. It's, it's context. Um, so it, it takes a look at Zora as a child and kind of that, like, where, where her background and growing up may have influenced her. So it's a fictionalized biography. You know, I'm sure not all of those things exactly happened that way, but it kind of makes some of those connections. And um, according to the books, it's, it's written from the perspective of Zora's best friend, Carrie. And Carrie's kind of following along in all of Zora's creative um, storytelling. So Zora kind of lives her life as a storyteller as a child in this story. You know, everything that would be, you know, normally like Carrie would look at something and see a tree, and Zora sees like the home of the fairies, you know. And Carrie looks at the, the little like hole that they kind of climb in and play games, and Zora sees it as like the beautiful castle, you know. And so from Carrie's perspective, she's like, it's it's a, and but Zora's always telling stories and always imagining things, and so then the, some weird things happen in town, and um, it's set in Florida in a, a town that was like an all African American town. It was uh, slaves that had, I think they'd run away or been freed or something, um, and they you know kind of set up their own township and things, and so but then even within that, it's not the perfect place, right? There's still issues and problems there. And so there are some things happening, and they are the mystery solvers trying to uncover. So Zora is imagining crazy things, but really there are real issues happening, and they actually solve them, not realizing that that's what they're doing by kind of following this imaginal, imaginational thing. Um, it's a little bit into spiritualism, um, like that magic fantasy, but like there were moments where it almost was like, ooh, like, as the Christian in me, it was like, I, it went a little bit from like, oh, this is fun fantasy to like <coughs> spirit world. And, um, and then when you're reading it from a kid perspective, you're like, I, I don't know what a kid would think about this. Like, the, um, would it be just fun or would it be some level of, um, 
I don't know, just there were moments where I was like, ah. But overall, I think it's a fun book. That was what I think the, ultimately the author's goal is to kind of share the story about this kid with a really big imagination. So it was fun. I liked it. The Orpheus plot uh, is sci-fi, and it's your classic story of coming of age and trying to be a bridge between two worlds, except the worlds are now out in outer space. Uh, it's really fast-paced for the kids that like lots of action. Um, it's very consistent from beginning to end. So even as an adult, I really, really enjoy the book because the characters are very realistic. You don't have just purely bad guys. You don't have just purely good guys. Um, the kid who's kind of caught in the middle is really conflicted. What do I do? I thought this was my dream, and now that I've got my dream, it's not perfect. And uh, basically what's happening is uh, there, there's the asteroid belt where there are all sorts of minerals to be mined and the people who do those jobs and live out there are sort of like second class citizens because the action is really all back here on Earth and the moon. Um, and the Navy is centered on Earth and in the moon. So everybody that goes into naval training is from Earth or the moon. And all of those poor little asteroid belt kids can't really get into the Navy. And it also gets, you know, I'm a science teacher too at the moment. <clears throat> been language arts, not science. Um, it does get into some really interesting thoughts about, you know, how does the physiology of human beings change in zero gravity? So when you get, when the kid who's grown up in the asteroid belt gets on board to the naval ship and starts trying to do some of the, you know, activities and physical games and things, he can't keep up. I mean, he is physically not as strong as everybody else and, you know, accidentally breaks a bone because his bones don't have the same density that everybody else's do. So it, it was very scientifically grounded, too. Um, next one is Strange Birds. Um, it seems like the, several of the books that I read this year had little, like, informational sections at the end. Like, the author had something they're really, really passionate about. So we're going to give you code-breaking stuff at the end of Rescue, and Audubon, and bird extinction stuff at the end of Strange Birds, and um, history of Occupy, uh, the British occupation of India in one of the other books later. So I really enjoyed the, the, the information about the birds. It's basically four girls who don't want to be part of the girls group in town. It takes place in Florida and there's this group that has always been, this is the girls group in town and at a certain age you can qualify to be Miss Bird Group in town and one of the girls is really, really heartbroken because in school she started learning about extinction of various species, and that hunting for feathers had a real effect on a lot of bird species in the United States. And the number one symbol of the group of the, the girls group in town <coughs> is the hat, which is bedecked with real feathers. It's the, the heirloom thing. It's been around for a hundred years or whatever, and she's just appalled that people could still be using this. So these four girls, who are unlikely compatriots, all get involved in trying to get them to stop using this hat. Now, like so many books about middle schoolers, all of the adults in the book are pretty much incompetent. And I'm sorry. If there's a hurricane outside, and you've told your kids not to go outside, and all four of these girls suddenly turn up missing, what would you think? But no adult thinks that until it's too late, and somebody gets hurt, broken arm, and, and still the girl whose parents are overproductive decide that, well, this proves that she can take care of herself so she can go and do the thing in New York that she's been wanting to do. I'm like, realistically, 
If I was sneaking out and my parents were overprotective of me to begin with, they would not be sending me out to New York, which they don't want to do in the first place. So again, there's the adult in me that's going, really? The child would go, wow, they are really trying to save the world. <laughs> they are willing to put it all on the line. And the girls do realize there is a chance that maybe mom and dad won't let me go to this thing in New York. But I'm willing to give that up because this is so important. We need to let people know that this is not a good idea. All right, The Lion of Mars. This is one of the nicest, most hopeful books that I've read in a long time. It, it leaves you at the end of the day going, wow, there is hope for humanity. Um, it takes place on Mars. Uh, the premise is various countries on Earth have made colonies on Mars, but something bad has happened, and the American colony no longer communicates with the other ones. And so for a long time, it's, it's a mystery why this has happened. And, you know, there, there are there's vestiges of communication. You see, like, so-and-so has a picture with someone that has a French flag on their uniform or whatever. So that at one point, they must have been friends. Well, a mysterious illness arrives. And it strikes the adults, not kids. And so all of the adults are getting very, very ill. And at the end of the book, the author's like, seriously, this was before COVID. <laughs> really? And, but, so the kids have to figure out, what, what are we going to do? So they spend a month trying to follow the rules that you don't ask the other colonies, you don't communicate with the other colonies. And it's killing them. They're running out of food. The kids are not sleeping. I mean, we're talking like middle school to high school kids, and there's six of them. And they're, they're running out of time and energy. And every message they're getting from the folks back home on Earth, they're like, well, you know, we sent the last shipment up with the last open window. should be there in about 18 months. They're like, we don't, we don't have 18 months. And so they finally come to the conclusion, maybe, maybe we have to contact the other colonies. Maybe they can help us. And the coolest part is the other colonies say, we're so glad that you've come back into contact with us. We have missed you. And the kids are like, there are other children in the world. They get together and they have parties. They have eggs. They have chickens. You know, there, there are all these, these realizations that we really do need each other. And it's, I mean, it's really hopeful. It's really nice. Gold Rush Girl, Avi. Okay. All right, so Avi, you've read some of you. You know some themes and... My, one of my favorite stories as a kid, uh, probably in middle school or growing up, was The True Confessions of Charlotte Doyle. I don't know if any of you have ever read that. But when I think back about that story as a kid, that one is all about this, um, like, breaking through the odds, right, of being the one girl who was able to, like, do the thing that no one at that time could do. It's very historical, almost like fantasy in that sense of, like, that never actually would have happened in the 1800s that a girl took over a ship, like that sort of thing. Well, Avia's done it again, right? Like, it's very similar from my perspective um, to the True Confessions of Charlotte Doyle, but for a new generation of children. Um, so Gold Rush Girl is about a girl in the um, time period of the 1848 Gold Rush. Her dad and younger brother are going to take a boat from the East Coast to the West Coast and go to San Francisco and be a part of the gold rush. And of course she wants to go, who wants to stay home with your mom when your brother and dad get to go do something fun. So she sneaks herself on board the ship and is able to do that. And, you know, they're out to sea before they realize she's there. It's a her and a literal ship full of men and boys, and she gets to stay. So that's a V, right? Like, let, let's her do the thing she wants to do. So 
Um, she gets there, and the cool part about this book is I did not know much about San Francisco and the Gold Rush, and this has a lot of historical stuff. So I'm assuming Evita's work and that it's accurate, but um, like just the, the shanty towns and the basically graveyard of boats that came there and all just everyone left the boats in the harbor and went to the gold rush and so it's just hundreds of boats in the harbor that are just there rotting essentially and so she gets left behind in San Francisco with her brother while her dad goes to the gold rush and so again it's a girl alone being independent doing her thing in 1848 in San Francisco it's a little far-fetched but um, I'll just say, but it's a fun, exciting story. And, you know, in the end, the, the thing she's learning is being independent is good, which is what she wants to do, but she does that almost at the expense of caring about her brother, and then her brother basically, want, you know, <laughs> tries to go home um, and gets kidnapped, and then she has to find him and save the day, and so, but then realizes, like, you know, other people do depend on me and care for me. So it's, it's really, I think, the themes about independence versus that meeting other people, supporting other people. So I thought the theme of it was really good and the historical stuff of it was really cool and it's just some classic of V. So, there we go. Red, White, and Whole is a novel in verse. Uh, the, it takes place in the 80s, so all of the musical references in it. Yes. <laughs> all right, girls just want to have fun. Um, the, the main character is born in the United States. Her parents were Indian immigrants. Um, and she feels very torn between two worlds. Where does she belong? Is she a normal American middle school girl, or is she part of the Indian community? And things kind of come to a head when her beloved mother is diagnosed with leukemia. Especially knowing that her grandmother had also died at a very similar age, probably also to leukemia. So it, it's going from just your, your usual middle school, oh, where do I fit in? How come I can't do these things like everybody else? I, my mom wants me to keep my hair long, I have to wear these kinds of clothes, to suddenly my world is about to change forever. And she discovers that she really needs both communities. She needs her friends to help her to get through the day at school and to be, you know, be there for her as a kid, and she needs her Indian community to be there for her whole family. So, yeah, I really, really enjoyed that. Um, next one is A Wish in the Dark. This was the, one of the honor, Newberry Honor books this year. It's a fabulous fairy tale. Um, my seventh grade daughter read it before I did, and I said, what do you think? She said, I loved it. Mom, it's not really from a Christian perspective, but I really liked it. I'm like, okay, so it's not, what are you getting out of this? Well, there is a Buddhist temple and he prays to Buddha in it. But other than that, I mean, that's, that's like the one episode that's not from a Christian perspective. So much of the rest of it is, what do you do as a society that has suffered a horrible tragedy? The city of Chatana had been destroyed by a fire. Anybody who happened to survive is grubbing around in the mud and the ashes, wondering how are we ever gonna re rebuild our lives? And then along comes, this mysterious monk out of the hills who can create light and heat. And he can put them into glass orbs and they can generate electricity for motors and there's no danger of fire. And they're beautiful different colors and the people welcome him back. They welcome him in and he becomes the governor of the city. And you know the city starts to rebuild. And everything sounds great. 
except it's not. Because what the characters start to figure out is one half of the city on one side of the river has the gold orbs, and the other side of the city might not even have enough orbs to be able to light up their own houses to cook by. In order to get your orbs recharged, you have to pay for the privilege. There are different colors of lights, which also tend to indicate your social economic status. And the governor is a very, very, he's the strong man in power. I am here to save the day, as long as you do it my way. And so, at the end of the book, it has the great question of, once the governor is gone, what do we do? There's hope. How are we going to work together? We have these newfangled solar orbs. Well, there's our light, but how are we going to cook our food? Do we dare to use fire again to do this? And how are we going to regulate it? So it's like, if you have a society where all of the, and, and there's a line at, right at the end where it's like, you know, it was so easy to have one person make all the decisions. Now that we have to work together to make the decisions, it's going to be hard work, but it'll be worth it. So it, uh, it's a beautiful book. Really, really enjoyed it. Um, then White Bird. This is a couple years old, actually. But I was sent a copy of it. It's a graphic novel. Much, much better portrayal of World War II than um, Rescue. Rescue is an adventure story set in World War II. This is World War II. It's historical fiction, but all of the events happen to somebody. It's like a composite of lives. Yeah, it's a fabulous book by R.J. Palacio. Is that how you say the name? Same person who wrote Wonder. All right. Yeah, you can't say enough about it without talking for a very long time or just, you know, take a look at it afterwards. Glass House of Stars. All right, Glass House of Stars. I think when I wrote it on the sheet here, I wrote the word unusual. Um, because so it's probably the thing that's unusual about it it's written in second person I don't know if I'd ever read a book before entirely written in second person so everything is you you go downstairs and this happens to you and then you do this and really it's really about the the I think it's a girl yeah um telling her story like it's written from a first-person narrator perspective, right? Like what she sees, what she does, going downstairs, going up. It's all from her point of view, but it's written in the you. You do this, and you do this, and you do this. And so it can be confusing, right? The first three or four pages I had was like, what is happening? It's kind of like watching Ferris Bueller's Day Off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Like, whoa. But then once I got into it, like the rhythm of it, and kind of got what, like, what the author was trying to do, like, the story still made sense. I still could follow it. Um, there were times that were a little confusing because it's a, it's a girl that's an immigrant. Her family's just arrived in the United States. No, I take that back. Her family's just arrived in the new land. They never say what the new land is. They never say what the old land is. And as I was reading the back cover of it or something, reading about the author, she lives in um, Australia. And so I actually think she's the new world, I think actually probably is somewhere in Australia, and the old world is, like, geographically there was moments where I was confused, too, because she talked about, like, where they came from and being from the north and the south. And so she's from an Asian country, but they really don't ever say that if it's the Philippines or, um, 
they came on a boat, I think, you know, so it's kind of, so I had something in my head, and then I'm trying to understand what this is, and they never really clarify, it's just all from this little girl's perspective, um, but her, they're very confused, she's very confused about this new language, this new school, all these new customs, all these, and a lot of it, as the reader, you're trying to figure out, like, what would she be talking about, what would this thing that I know about, right, which is like, the Western world and the way schools work, what would she be? And so you're kind of doing a lot of guesswork. And then the house that they stay in has a personality. So it, (laughs) uh, again, a little, it grows when the family comes to visit, it gets more rooms. And when she gets sad and cries because bad things happen, the house (coughs) shrinks and gets smaller and she can't find that stairway anymore. Um, it rose down to the size, or shrinks down to the size of like one room at one point. So I'll just say it's unusual and it's a little hard to follow. But um, the the dad in the story gets in a car accident and dies. Her, her mom goes into depression and shuts down, um, and she ends up being the one that kind of has to struggle through and still go to school and still do the things expected of her and help her mom get out of the house again for the first time after all that and like. I don't know, it's, it's heartwarming. And I guess I should get to what is the house, the glass house of stars. That's, um, this is the, the greenhouse in the backyard that in reality is like the panes of glass are falling in, it's broken, but one day she goes in because she's sad and opens the door and in the inside it transforms into um, the, house, the, the place that her uncle had written to them about, which is a beautiful um, orchard and she can grow plants in it and it, it's the thing that kind of gets her through all the hard things and, and at one point she brings a friend into the house uh, the glass house and it doesn't work like it doesn't transform because he's too unhappy and she's not believing or something like that it will happen and so anyway it's it's unusual and I think if you I think there might be kids that pick up this book and like I cannot do this and walk away from that I would not be shocked about that at all took me a lot as an adult to stick with it um but I guess if you can there might be a kid who just picks it up and is like they're they're in love because it's so different such a unique book so if you ever see a kid reading it you'll have to have a conversation with like what do you think about that book because I'd be curious strong as fire and fierce as flame takes place in India um, during the British rule in the mid-1880s. They, talk, they kind of go back and forth between talking about the British <coughs> occupation and the British East India Company, but I don't know how much you know about the British being in East India. In a lot of ways, the British East, Com- East India Company was the representative of the British government. So those terms being you know, used interchangeably is pretty historically accurate. Um, the story takes place, you know, starts with Mira, the main character. She's 12 years old. When she turns 13, she's going to actually marry the young man she's been engaged to since about two. You know, arranged marriages. That was a thing. So she's not sure about this because she actually has met the kid, and he's kind of a brat. Um, she, you know, there was a kite flighting inc- fighting incident, and she cut down his kite, and he yelled at her and was, you know, stormed off and broke her kite and... Yeah, so she's not really excited about this, and it means she has to leave her home. So she's got all these, like, 12-year-old girl issues going on. And then, like, the week of the wedding, her husband-to-be has gone with his dad to Delhi to do something for the wedding. 
and gets killed in a riot there. So she's suddenly a widow at the age of 12, almost 13. Her father and her to-be in-laws are both very, very strict, religiously Hindu, and she is expected to commit ritual suicide on her husband's funeral pyre. She, this is where the story starts to get really dark because she had had an older brother who had been married, and when he died, her sister-in-law was taken out and had to commit the suicide on the, the funeral pyre. And what everybody talks about is, oh, wasn't she so brave? Oh, wasn't she so good? And what she remembers, because she didn't see this happen, she remembers this girl in utter terror. So she escaped out the window before she gets taken away. And this is where the story starts to unravel for me as an adult. There are so many issues that this author wants to talk about. And she talks about them in the, in the like, notes after the, after the story. She does a great job with a lot of historical research at the end of the story. But she I think she's trying to bring way too much into the world of a 13-year-old who has run away from home and is completely uneducated. She's suddenly able to mysteriously get a job as a well-highly-trusted worker inside the house of the local British commander at the town that she lands in. She's uneducated. She doesn't even know how to cook. You know, it's one of those things she's been trying to learn from mom, and she says by her own admission she's not really all that good at it. Okay, so, but if you're along for the ride, you get a really quick view of British rule in India from the Indian perspective, rather than the British perspective, because you think, and, and the author brings this up, all the classic stories, you know, think of Little Princess, um, Secret Garden, anything by Rudyard Kipling, um, even things like the Jungle Book, they're very much from the Western perspective of, and this is what their culture is like. And the author is saying, look, you should really learn about the culture from the perspective of the people that are in the culture. And don't paint us all with one brush. And she then paints everybody else that's British with one brush. So, you know, I, I think she's, she's really trying hard to tell a really good story, but she brings so much into it. As an adult, it's kind of hard to go, mm. yeah. But as a kid, it's a great introduction to a whole lot of things that most Americans have absolutely no idea about. You know, that's, that's an entire culture that was ruled by another entire culture for a very long time, and there are still part of what's going on in the world with India and Pakistan is the fallout from things that happened 200 years ago. So it's a great quick introduction at a kid level. If you're going to do a PhD on that sort of thing, don't read the book. <laughs> Kids fight plastic. <coughs> this is cute. It's fun. And it's very practical. This you could do from like third grade up through high school. Um, high schoolers would find it very cartoony. Middle schoolers would probably get into it. Uh, it's one of those books where you've got lots of information on the page, so you can read this little box or that little box, but it also has lots of very practical suggestions. Things like, hey, ask your mom to buy you a straw, and actually say, no thank you, I don't need a straw, when you go to McDonald's. And then make sure you wash the straw out, because otherwise it'll turn gross. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's very, it's lighthearted, it's not doom and gloom if you fail to do this. It's saying, hey, these are the consequences. A hundred years ago, everybody washed everything and reused everything. Why? Because that's all we had. Now we've got plastic where we have, as a culture, 
really found it convenient to not have to wash anything ever. We just throw it away. But that just means that somebody else has to clean it up later because everything has to get cleaned up sometime. Uh, this was this is a fantastic book. I'm honestly only about halfway through. Um, exploring the White House inside America's most famous home. It's more about the people who work there than the people who live there. And it's all the behind-the-scenes stuff. Like every day when you walk into this room, it's going to look like this. Why? Well, because there's a full-time florist. Well, when did flowers start being put every day in the White House. Well, that was under so-and-so's administration, and the first full-time floral arranger was so-and-so. And the point that really drives home is the people who are working in the White House are nonpartisan. They are serving the office of the presidency. It doesn't matter who it is that's living there. They are doing their absolute best to present the country as a unified, we-got-this-together-people kind of whole. And when, when things go wrong, nobody points fingers and blames, you know, undersecretary so-and-so for this. They say, we're going to all pull together and fix this problem. And then there are all sorts of cute stories. Like one time, uh, Jackie Kennedy and her husband had planned to do, you know, just have the day to themselves. And then they found out that a princess was going to be arriving for dinner. And she was going to be expecting to stay the night in, like, the, the Lincoln Room or the, the Queen's Room. And Jackie Kennedy did not want to give up her free time. So she convinced the house staff to redecorate, because she was on the big redecorating kick, right? To redecorate those two rooms that night. So they staged those two rooms, and as the president is giving the tour to the resident, you know, to the, the visiting princess, he says, Well, and you know, normally we would have host you by putting you up in these rooms, but as you can see, my wife, she's redecorating, and the princess takes the bait and says, Well, you know, I'll go stay somewhere else tonight. You know, it's, it's those, those weird little stories you never hear from anywhere else. So, you know, what pets do in the Oval Office. Things like that. All right. I, yeah. Taking up space. All right. Um, I don't know if you remember, I mean, you're all here probably because you were involved in some way with middle schoolers, but I don't know if you remember what it was like to be a middle schooler. Like, if you can put yourself back in that place as a middle schooler and, and that confusion of like everybody why? in the room is cringing just yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to get you there like why don't my pants fit the same or the sports bra doesn't work anymore or like oh that boy just looked at me and I, why does my face just get so bright red I hate it when that happens like that feeling of confusion that happens in here when you're in middle school I think this book perfectly captures that, okay? So it's written from the perspective of a middle school girl who's feeling all the things. And as the reader, you don't always know why she's feeling that. Like, she doesn't always articulate it. She's like, she's, she's not enlightened, right? Like, she's in the middle of feeling like things aren't quite right, and I don't know why this is happening, and I can't... I used to be able to be the fastest kid on the basketball team, and now I can hardly run from here to there without losing my breath and what is going on with me. And So it's kind of like her, her, just her struggles with that, and then adults try to help her, and she misinterprets everything every adult says for like half the book. So, you know, the adults are saying things like, well, that's just part of life, and it's going to take a little while, and, and, and that just like ruins her day. Like, but I don't want it to take a little while. And, and then, so then there's another piece that I just have to mention her mom, 
you start to get the hints from from her perspective that like, something's going on with her mom, and you're like, as the reader, like, what? They're trying like, is it this? Is it that? You're trying to figure out like, what is up with this lady? Um, and her, and she obviously doesn't know because she's the daughter, like trying to figure out her own thing and like these weird things. So it kind of turns out that her mom um, has an eating disorder and is struggling with eating herself. So her mom will go on these binges where she just hides candy all over the house and just, just eats candy for, like, days on end and then won't eat anything because she's, like, paying herself, like, retribution for eating all the candy. But in the meantime, she has this middle school daughter who, like, there's no food in the house because her mom refuses to buy food because she's having an issue. And then the daughter takes all these issues that... She's feeling like things are weird and then interprets like, well, I guess I should be like my mom and not eat anything and starts to develop an eating disorder. And other people in her life are recognizing that and trying to help her. But she has this whole, then she develops this whole list of what I can and can't eat and when and how and why. And so it's kind of her evolution of her thinking process. And I think it would be really a cool book to read with a group of girls and have a conversation about like, have you ever felt that way? And what did, you know, do you have any of these kind of rules? And why do you think her mom's acting like that? Like when you're in the middle of that, asking that question. And I mean, I just, I really enjoyed it because it would be a great talking point about um, the, a lot of growing up things, a lot of what is the struggle of being in middle school and how much your body changes and how you don't always have control over that, how frustrating that is. Um, and even just the eating and the food and all that, our, our culture is just so consumed with dieting and, and food and things like that. And so to kind of unpack some of that, I just thought there were some really great lines in there about um, like healthy ways of thinking and identifying some really negative thought patterns and things like that. All right, that brings us to the end of what we managed to squeeze into reading this year. <laughs> and if you didn't check out the thing from last year, we're just going to buzz through it quickly. Uh, Manana Land. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Manana Land is a story about a, um, a boy in a Central American country. It's, there's a lot of like Spanish um, woven into the story. And it's got kind of a fantasy element that there's this place that called Manana Land, that's like the perfect place, and it's, it's um, the country that they're in is in civil war, and so, but there's this kind of perfect place somewhere else, and um, people are being um, taken there who are the ones, so what, I'm trying to think of the right word for this, like there's two different groups of people, and one is um, being treated badly by the government. What's my word? I don't know what the right word for that is. Oppressed? Oppressed, yeah, that's a good word. Those being, and so they're, they're being, like, taken secretly to Manana Land to keep them safe. And then he ends up being the one who takes, um, who has to take people on this journey. Um, it's got a little bit of a fantasy element to it. And I think there, it's a boy is the main character. I think that um, it'd be a great, like, I, my kids are in Spanish immersion, um, but they like to read stories written in English um, at times, too. And so I thought, oh, my, one of my boys might like the story because it's got the action, the adventure, but it's got a lot of Spanish words, so they could be like, yeah, I know that stuff. So, I'm have to yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, Birdie, you want to do that one too? Oh, Should we Birdie. Run through just quick? Yeah. Um, Birdie's a novel in verse. And um, this one, uh, her dad uh, passed away. Um, they moved to a new town. Her mom starts dating someone, and she just 
hates him because, of course, that she doesn't want her dad replaced and she is mad about that. Um, but then, you know, that's it's just the process of moving forward with life rather than being stuck. Okay. Uh, one and only Bob. Oh, you These can talk. These are all mine. All right. Um, this one, if you are familiar with the one and only Ivan, it's a, a sequel to that. So it's the, I think it's some of the same characters. Um, they're at the zoo. There's a hurricane. There's some excitement. Um, if you liked the one and only Ivan, you'd probably like the one and only Bob. Uh, shouting at the rain. Oh, that was me. This is going back a year. Has it been a year for everybody else, too? <laughs> All right. Um, I'm like, ooh. <laughs> shouting at the rain. Oh, it's very, it's, it's very optimistic. Uh, we've got, the biggest deal is, who are who and your friends are going to be the glue? Who's going to help you hold everything together? And which of your friends are going to be just sort of like the sparkles? You know, they're kind of fun, but they're not going to hang out in your life for very long. And it's, it's about... Figuring out who are the people that are really going to stand by your side when things get tough and help you to get to the other side where things are better. National Parks in the USA is beautiful. It's an absolutely gorgeous book. If you are ready to get out and go places, and especially if you've got young kids, pick up this book and start figuring out where you want to go. It has no photos in it. It's all drawings. But it's really beautiful artwork. It's really engaging. She's here. Oh, she is? It's about uh, chimney sweeps in Victorian <coughs> London in like 1870s, 1880s or so. And back before they came up with really good brooms and every house had large chimneys with, you know, lots of fireplaces and stuff, they literally sent children up chimneys. You were a chimney climber. And this girl is part of a group of orphans who is a chimney climber. And what happens when their evil overlord chimney sweep um, is really being terrible? And then you get the you get the fantasy aspect of it. The this part about her monster is she's been given this thing that acts as a golem. Do you know what a golem is? It's part of they're like old stories. Um, the, one, the one I can think of offhand is Prague in the Middle Ages. One of the times when the Jewish population was about to be annihilated by the people around them, um, the rabbis created a golem, and this large monster rose up and protected them from everybody around them, and when the golem was no longer needed, it was put back to rest, and so the legend is that the, the golem is still there to protect the Jews of Prague. She's given a golem that is there to protect her until she's safe again, but the golem loves her and she loves it because it protects her so how do you what do you do when you it's sort of like what do you do when you no longer need the people that support you can you move on I mean mm -hmm. to some degree it's, it's like us as teachers and parents there will come a day where they don't need us in the same way so how do we let them go how do they let us go <coughs> uh, finding Langston is beautiful um, it's historical fiction. It's about the great migration for the African-American community from the deep south into the north, like Chicago and Detroit and stuff, Pittsburgh. He ends up going to Chicago, where he's the country boy. 
all of his classmates in his, you know, all of his classmates are African American just like him, and they're making fun of this poor country boy for his clothes and his accent and where he's from and his weird name, Langston. Well, his mother loved poetry. And he stumbles into a library. The kid's never been in a library before, and he's just shocked that he can be here, and they let him take out books. And the librarian is like the key to this, because she starts introducing him to Langston Hughes, his namesake. And he starts to realize that I can make friends, I can stand up for myself, I can help my dad, because his mother had died, and that was their, their reason for moving up north. Uh, our Castle by the Sea is historical fiction, it's World War II, and this is taking place in England. Who's the enemy? Because the main character, her mother is German. Her father is English. And they live as lighthouse keepers on the south shore of England. And when strange vandalism starts happening around town, who does everybody blame? The family with the German wife. And the, the mother ends up being taken off to prison. So how do you deal with that? It's, it's mostly a mystery story. You know, how, trying to figure out, well, who is actually to blame. Uh, Les Miserables came, uh, well, there were two retellings, two adaptations. Whenever you take a book that thick and bring it down to this thick and put it in language that fifth and sixth graders can read, you're going to lose something. You're going to lose something. Um, this one, there were two of them. This one, uh, my biggest concern is right at the very beginning, the whole book hinges on Jean Valjean escaping. You know, he's, he's been released, he's got his, crim you know, his papers and he's trudging through the countryside and he gets taken in for the night by the priest, the old abbot. And in the middle of the night, he gets up and he steals <laughs> all the silver. And he starts to sneak out and he gets caught and dragged back to the abbot's house. I mean, he's beaten the abbot. And the abbot says, you forgot the candlesticks. And it's that life-changing, I can't talk about it without almost bursting into tears. It's that life-saving moment that changes and sets the whole rest of the story in motion. But if you drop that from the beginning, all you've got is you know a bunch of people in the revolution. Some are good and some are bad. Heather. All right. We have four minutes. We oh, have yeah, four minutes. Okay. This is uh, I think a little better retelling. And then March. Oh my goodness. If you want to know about history and you want kids to get engaged, these are a fabulous introduction to the civil rights movement. John Lewis, unfortunately, passed away last year, right? I know it's all kind of a blur which year it was, but within the last year. So, we have been oh, yes. very kindly presented with some books that we would like to give away to you. From the book book. From the book, book. No, from, no. A, from, from somebody else. No. Someone else. Somebody okay. else. I'm sorry. <laughs> Wanted to remain nameless, and it's not me. Okay. All right, so, but what, we've got lots of you, and all of you are like, books! Um, <laughs> what's going to be the, the nicest way to do this? All right. Who is a new teacher in here? Like, this is your first year. Stand up. Stand up. Yay! Welcome to the club. All right, so all, all three of you come on up and get yourself. Pick, take a pick. Take a pick. All right. Should we go who? Oh, let's go big or go home. Who's the oldest teacher in here? Who's been doing this the longest? 25 years? Of teaching. Of teaching. Not age, but teaching. 25 years? Okay. 35 years. Can anybody do 35? Both of you, 35. Well, then step right up. Both of you. Ladies, come on up. Come on up. Yeah. Just take what you Thank you very much.
don't worry. What? 26. 26. Yes, 26 sounds great too. If you've done 26, that's great. 26. 26 like is like a good random number. Um, let's see. Who has the most language arts responsibilities? Like you're teaching the biggest spread, like fifth grade through eighth grade, you're doing it all. It's okay, so one at a time. Let's raise our hands. Yes. What have you got? Six through nine. What have you got? Six through eight. Seven through twelve. Seven through twelve. That one, that That's going to be tough to beat. What do you got? We'll, we'll get librarians as a special category in just a second. I think seven to twelve right, stuck right up. That's a lot. Oh, and this one should be over there too. Sorry. Well, I wasn't sure. Yep, sorry. That one should be over there too. It's got a weird cover, but that's how it came. All right, librarians. All right, how many of you are librarians? One, two, three. Yeah, we got enough books yet. All three librarians, step right up. Woo, thank you for sharing books with everybody. We love you. Wasn't there a third librarian? There is. She, she already got it. Oh, she's librarian. You're a librarian. Oh, yeah, double duty. Okay. Oh, boy. Um, so we've got how many left? Looks like we have four left. Okay, most schools that you've taught in. Most different schools. What have you got? Five? Can anybody beat five? Four? Five? Okay, if you've got five, step right up. Two five. Okay. Five, five. Alright. Uh let's see. Oldest birthday. Oldest birthday. Yeah, that's getting a little personal. She said closest. Close oh, closest birthday. Tuesday? Tuesday? Sunday? Okay, Sunday is closer today. Subjects. Not okay. Like most most grades, most different subjects. You've been bouncing around the most. What do you got? K through eight. Every grade. All right. K through eight. Every grade. I think that takes a